0: 16 I met a man named Harry Hyde and he built a car for me, sponsored by Granddaddy Hillen's Drilling Company, we ran in five Grand Nationals when I was 17, my Talladega finish was the start of my big dream. Given me the brakes. I must admit she smiled a bit, but it's me that runs the race. Now you can't be a champion, given the luck or circumstance. I'll do the best I can for those who've given me the chance. Thank,
1: Thank you, you for the
0: ride, Harry High. And now I've got the voters on my side.
1: Welcome in everybody to a special edition of Loose Nuts, the NASCAR podcast by the average fan for the average fan. I'm Evan Roberts joined alongside my partner in crime, Thomas Dick and Thomas, a special episode as we had our first guest of the podcast and I thought it was uh, a pretty good interview. We had Bobby Hill and juniors who won the 1986 Uh, Talladega 500 celebrating his 35th year anniversary of his win I thought it was pretty interesting to get his perspective uh, on that race uh, particularly but then his just his overall view on racing uh, NASCAR in general
2: yeah it's I enjoyed it because he raced during a different time if you get on the YouTube and you find that uh, 1986 Talladega 500 watch it It is exciting, and it's, like, you. I forgot NASCAR was like that. It was pure speed. They were going 2.02 on the final lap of the race. The guys qualified 2.09. There was no pit road speed, just, and it was balls-to-the-wall racing, and
1: I enjoyed listening to him talk about that. So we will get into that interview right now. Here it is, Bobby Hillen, Jr., All right, we're now joined by a very special guest and our first guest of the Loose Lug Nuts podcast. It is 17-year NASCAR Cup veteran Bobby Hillen Jr. and winner of the 1986 Talladega 500. Bobby, appreciate you uh, joining us. Uh, glad to be on the show and uh, good good to meet you guys. So, we mentioned you uh, won the Talladega 500 in 86. Does it feel like it's been 35 years? No, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm probably in
3: First shame I've ever been. I think I could go out run those guys
1: today. <laughs> so I mean, going back to that day. I mean, it'll be uh, 35 years in uh, July, but uh, NASCAR's heading there uh, this week. What do you remember most about that day? And more importantly, how many Miller Highlifes did you have in celebration? <laughs> well, you know, a, a few, but not too many. We were, we were pretty much,
3: you know, getting back, getting ready to go to the next race. It's probably part of my problem of my career is I never really learned it enjoyed the some of the good things that happened and it, it probably ended up being a detriment to my career because i was always so intense about everything but uh no it's just as far as what i remember on that day it was a really really hot day as a matter of fact somebody passed out and died in the grandstands that day it was so hot and another interesting thing that happened that day is a, a fan broke broke down from the stands and stole the pace car prior to the race start <laughs> and they had to chase him down and and, uh, and pull him over and so that was kind of interesting a couple other notes um uh made dale earnhardt mad at one point in the race with one of the moves that i made which i thought was pretty cool and um another interesting thing was that at one point somebody was leaking oil on their windshield or on my windshield and i literally and this is before restrictor plates so You know, that weekend, we were clocked going into the corner at 218 miles an hour. And so uh, if you can imagine that with your windshield covered with oil, I was literally looking out my side window onto the white stripe that uh, designated the difference between the apron and the racetrack. And I was using that white stripe as my guide out looking out my looking out my, my window, my side window, which really, there's no window there, <laughs> but looking out that to see, you know, just to get through the, to the turn. So that was pretty scary until uh, we were able to make our next pit stop and, and clean the windshield. So, uh, you know, some pretty interesting events on that day.
2: And those were the uh, squeegee days. You guys didn't have the tear offs back then.
3: <laughs> that's correct.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> that's correct. you were talking about the speed and, and I I've read somewhere that last lap, uh, where you wanted 202 miles per hour for the uh, the lap, and the the uh, pole was set at 209 miles per hour, and then of course next year the big crash with Bobby Allison, and they went to restrictor plates. First, give us an idea of the difference between running 209 miles an hour and 180, and what do you think about restrictor plate racing? Well, I was never a big
3: fan of restrictor plate racing because um, it, it, it's, it, it, it kind of made it to where the race became truly who had the better car and, you know, guys were willing to, you know, kind of crash each other out more with restrictor plates because they weren't going as fast. Whereas when I was racing prior to restrictor plates, for example, you could qualify, you know. 15th 20th even as far back as 25th in a race but if the average lap speed was over 200 miles an hour say it was two three two four two six the guys that wanted to go fast were ultimately going to make their way to the front whether they had a, a fifth fastest car or a 25th fastest car they were willing they were willing to, to 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 race hard and get to the front and so you could do that at daytona and talladega before restrictor plates and so I wasn't really a fan of restrictor plates. Um, and, and for a long time, I wasn't really, a- after I left the Stavola brothers, I wasn't really with a good team until I went to Talladega again to drive, uh, in replacement of Davey Allison and Robert Yates car. And it was amazing because when I drove down pit road, I immediately realized that I've got a much faster car than I've ever had at Talladega with, with restrictor plates. And so it was, uh, it was pretty easy driving the the Robert Yates car with restrictor plate uh, compared to the cars I've been in in the past.
1: Do you think the restrictor plate racing is more dangerous than when you were racing? Because it seems like, you know, we've had these big wrecks and then obviously uh, last year with the Ryan Newman accident and these cars are a lot closer than what they are. Do you think it's more dangerous than what it was before?
3: Well, I wouldn't designate it restrictor plate versus non-restrictor plate. The, The racing in general is far safer since Dale Earnhardt died. Yep. Because before Dale Earnhardt died, safety was, was something that NASCAR did not want to be involved in. But as a matter of fact, they kind of looked at safety as a, as a liability. In other words, they, they had the attitude that if they mandated certain safety features that say maybe didn't work out so well, they could be held liable. So they, were, they kind of shied away from that. Where after Dale Earnhardt died, they did a complete 180, and they 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 instituted all of these things from the Hans device to the safer barrier, to the um, the the way the seats and the padding and the headrest are are built into the seats. They're so much safer today that um, it's just it's just generally safer now. If you go back to restrictor plate versus non-restrictor plate, the um, cars because the cars are safer. You know, you'd probably be safer without restrictor plates, but you, you know, that's hard to say too. Because you want the cars running together, you know, whether you've got restrictor plates or not. You want the cars drafting. You want the cars putting on a good show. Um, you just don't want the drivers to feel so much like they're in go go karts that they're just kind of bumping each other all over the place. You really want it to where they're running close, they're running hard, they can touch but they're just not blatantly
1: running into each other. Yeah. So going back to the uh, Talladega race that you won, we were watching it on YouTube. I don't know if you uh, knew that the whole race was on there. It's pretty. It was pretty exciting to watch, But, and you mentioned how hot it was. Some of these guys had cooling suits, uh, but you didn't. Uh, so did you ever try the new cooling suits back then? And then if you didn't, how do you stay cool in a car when it's you know that hot and you're staying in there for over three hours?
3: Well, so during my period of driving was kind of the evolution of the cool suits. Um, it started off with, you know, the first bad mistake I ever made, I think in my first ever race, is I told them I was hot. And during one of the pit stops, they, they, they literally put a garden hose, in, they put a garden hose in the cockpit during the pit stop, and I squirted water all over myself, which felt good for about 15 seconds. But when I went out on the racetrack, it became a sauna. And all that water sitting in my seat and the car's just steaming up. It was the hottest thing in the world. And so I learned not to do that. Um, But then later on, they came out with what they call a cool suit, where you ran, uh, you put a vest on your, you, you literally put a vest on underneath your driving suit, and you put a cap on, like a swimmer's cap, and the vest and the cap were connected to this water cooler that you put in the, in the car. And it, and it had ice in it and, and it circulate the water through your body. And when it worked, it worked really, really well. Um, but the problem is it, 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 it did not work more than it did work. Mm. And so I can remember one time at Martinsville, it was literally cooking me. I was being cooked in the car And during one of the putt stops, I was trying to rip this cap off my head. I was trying to just do everything I could do to to get this thing to quit working and, um, or to just get unhooked from it. So, you know, those things didn't last very long, you know, and then then there's, you know, then they they started filtering the carbon monoxide, which a big benefit, even though it wasn't really a cooling system, it kept the drivers breathing more fresh air, which was a, a real benefit. But the cooling system that they have today um, from, from just looks of the drivers when they get out of the car, it's amazing. Sometimes they don't even look like they've raced a race. And it's primarily around, um, you know, running cool air through the helmet and letting the driver breathe cold air and have cold air on his head, which we were doing that too, towards the end. But the, the part that actually cooled the air was not as sophisticated as today. And I can't even tell you what they're doing today I know there's some dry ice involved and there's some other kind of uh, technology, but I'm not even sure really what it is today. But we did dry ice and, um, and it, worked, it worked pretty good.
2: You won in a Buick and the thing looked like a brick. <laughs> How did that thing handle?
3: Well, um, it's kind of interesting that the, the, that particular year when the season started off what, what they call today what they call the splitter which is kind of the very lower part of the nose that that's the lowest part towards the racetrack you know that controls your either downforce or lift in the front end and, and we had at that time you know what, what they called was a lower valence and it was just whatever extended from the front of your bumper down in front of the car and we had something that worked pretty good that that uh, General Motors and Buick came up with for the Buick and NASCAR, uh, some other cars complained about it. So NASCAR uh, outlawed it at Daytona that year before we started the season. So we went to Daytona and I drove out of pit road and I went up through the gears and I went in and turns three and four and I I came off a four and I went into the triangle, and I was up to speed. I was pretty much a hundred percent up to speed by the time I got around the start finish line. But when I turned the steering wheel, the car didn't turn. It started going straight into the fence. And I had to back off the gas and let the weight put the nose down. And then the car grabbed and almost spun out. And so I came in and I said, Hey, we got big problems here. The, The front end's coming off the ground. And so, uh, turns out that all the buicks were having that same problem we lobbied nascar to get a a front valence you know or what you call today a front splitter that's going to create a little bit of downforce and so once we did that we had a car that was pretty balanced and uh, we were able to finish fourth in the daytona 500 that year and fourth at talladega and then uh, we won talladega and then we also finished third i think in pepsi 400 with that car
2: now, now that race had uh, it had forty nine lead changes, twenty six different drivers. You mentioned you had run fast before at Daytona and Talladega. At what point during that race, with all the different people in it, did you know that you would have a chance to win it? Um, Saturday's
3: practice. We we ended Saturday's practice, and a lot of people in the garage area knew that we had we had a really good car, and so it's just a matter of if if we if we could. Uh, keep them from shuffling us to the back and ganging up on us and, and we could stay out of trouble. We knew we had a good chance to win.
1: So when, when I was watching the race, one of the things i noticed that is completely different now is that there was no pit road speed limit. And now we kind of see like guys having all these, you know, penalties and, it, you know, Ryan Blaney got uh, screwed for the third time at Martinville with the pit road penalty. How insane is it to like look back at it and realize that there was no speed limit? Well, you know, I, I kind of think they still shouldn't be a speed limit today. Um,
3: It's so difficult because it's really hard to gauge, you know, your speed on pit road and it's much more sophisticated again today than it was, but it's still drivers get called for speeding. And it's kind of a shame uh, because when there was no speed speed road limit, it it, it put more in the driver's hands and also put more in the team. The team had to make sure they had a car that, so for example, at Daytona and Talladega, if you don't use, you well, you don't, you don't use any brake on the racetrack. So, but you still had to have a good braking system to get on and off pit road. And so, for example, in 1990, I was running second to Dale Earnhardt at Daytona, and we had literally left the entire field. It was just me and Dale Earnhardt. And I specifically remember saying, I'm not going to let him beat me on pit road when we pitted. And he pitted. two laps before me and so i took the lead and i was leading for a couple laps and then when we pitted i I came in really hot and um but when it came down to actually get stopped for my pit stall i spun out and the reason is because my team had had uh, tried to make the car faster by putting on some really bad uh lightweight brakes and they were all geared towards uh rear bias so i really only had rear brakes trying to come down pit road which that's something they had changed prior to the race and I wasn't used to it and ended up spinning out. Uh, we ended up finishing fourth in that race, but, but, uh, you know, I, I kind of think it's, uh, you know, I do, I do think it's safer for the crews, but they could, I mean, it's really, it's, you know, it's just a tough call, but, but, you know, it's what it is today and it's part of racing and everybody does it.
2: Now you mentioned Dale and in, in that race, he, uh, interview towards the end of the race, he, he mentioned you uh, by name as, as someone that was uh, doing a little bumping and whatnot. Um, It seemed a little whiny for someone named the uh, intimidator, but uh, I mean, did you end up, uh, what kind of relationship did you end up having with him? Well, you know,
3: we were never best friends, but we were all, but we, but we got along well and and we, and I I had a lot of respect for him because you know, while one driver might've been winning most popular driver every year, Dale was really the most respected. I think he was the most respected among the fans and the and the competitors because he he was who he was and he wasn't one person to the uh to the fans and somebody else to the insiders in the garage area. He was the same guy to everybody and he he really treated me well. We had we had a kind of a we kind of had a interesting we were we we had a good relationship even though we didn't hang out together all the time and uh, he, he always treated me well and well, he got upset with me a few times and I got upset with him a few times.
2: You know, uh, we, we really never had any serious problems. Now, in that race early on, they mentioned there was tire chipping going on with some of the cars. Was that something you guys were experiencing? Or if, if ever you're going 200 miles an hour and they're like, hey, your tires are a little suspect. Just how do you go about handling that? You know, that's something I don't remember from that race.
3: Um, I mean, there are a lot of racetracks where we had tires blistering or, or, or um, you know, chunking or whatever, but, but that's something I don't remember at that race. Now, I will tell you some. You, you bring up a memory about Dale Earnhardt. I'll, I'll tell you what kind of guy Dale is. Um, a few years later, I was racing in the, what they call Bush Grand National at the time, what they call Xfinity Series today. I was racing in Nazareth, Pennsylvania and it's when you have two tire manufacturers, Goodyear and Hoosier tires. We started the race on Hoosiers and they were blistering really bad. Dale Earnhardt Sr. happened to be in that particular bush race, which we both ran limited scheduled bush races at the time. He got in an early crash and was crashed out of the race. And so when our tires started blistering, he gave us all of his Goodyears. So if you switched from one manufacturer to another, you had to go a lap down. So we took Dale Earnhardt's Goodyear's, we went a lap down and came back and won the race. But he never even sent us a bill for those tires.
1: Wow, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was great. So looking back and you know, uh, Talladega was the one race that you won. How awesome is it to say that you just won the Talladega 500 and you don't have to put like a sponsor like the 1000 bulbs.com 500 or something like that? yeah i mean uh you know
3: uh yeah we don't i you know we don't talk about that today in terms of i don't but um you know the drivers you know that's part of what makes nascar work is the drivers you know promoting their sponsors and you know what's what's really kind of a sad thing today is that um the the there's not the budgets are so high that, that not one or two sponsors can sponsor a car or a team for the entire year so a team or a driver team combination you know has to have so many sponsors throughout the year that it's hard for the the sponsor the the fans to follow you know which team driver sponsor combination are going to be given in any any weekend you know so it does make it tougher on the drivers promoting their sponsors but you know generally speaking you know some of these drivers you know that's really frustrated uh watching their end of the race at martinsville yesterday because A couple of the drivers that finished second and third, their interviews were just pretty kind of boring and sour push is, you know, just not very – I don't know. I didn't think it was – you didn't think they were really trying to get a lot of fans. But, uh, you know, there's a lot – some drivers do better than others. Some drivers do better on certain weeks than they do. But, you know, I really wish the drivers would would try to act like they're excited to be there and that they want the fans to come out and uh, see them.
2: Now, that uh, 86 season, you were uh, teammates with Bobby Allison. Was that a mentor-mentee relationship, or was that an old man uh, fighting off the young whippersnapper kind of thing? Yeah, m- more of the second.
1: Huh. Well, you were talking about you know, NASCAR and like the sponsorships, and this might be a bigger, uh, bigger picture question, but do you think, like when you were racing, that was kind of like the golden days of you know, NASCAR. Do you think they could ever get back to where they were?
3: Well, I think NASCAR has done a lot of things good, you know, in the last year. I mean, they were the first, really first sport to come back from COVID. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've really done a lot of exciting things. They've done some things that, you know, originally I thought, gosh, why are they doing this? or Why are they doing that? But it seems to be working. So, you know, I, I got to give NASCAR a lot of credit. They're, they're really, they're doing a lot of really good things. I mean, I like what they're doing, you know, in terms of mixing up the races Uh, I like what they're doing, you know, with trying to, with the rules package, trying to make the racing closer, you know, they're doing a lot of really, really good things. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, and, and I do see, I really do see a day where a team with the, the budget, the teams, the sponsors are all going to come in line where, where the teams won't have to have, or the drivers won't have to have so many sponsors per season. And it can kind of help bring back the fan identification.
1: So I don't know if you know this about uh, uh, the the way we end every episode is we have your song about Harry Hyde. That is is like our outro. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) That's embarrassing. Uh, How did that come about? And do you ever wish you could have uh, gone on to have a little singing career? Well, no. I was probably the worst singer on that album.
3: And um, the only thing good about that is that when people – hear how because I love to sing like when we're having parties especially if I've had a drink I love to sing and I love to sing loud but I'm really really bad and so when people you know they go oh gosh you're a terrible singer I'm saying well at least I've made money singing because we (laughs) did we did receive royalties and it was pretty cool because you know it was was early on when I first started racing before you know it was before I mean I can't remember when it was but it was early on And, you know, these guys came up with this idea and they flew all the drivers one at a time to Nashville to record the album. And uh, they they wrote the songs. We didn't write the songs. Um, I thought my song was a little corny, but it was it was still cool, Uh, which they were all kind of corny. Um, But but yeah, no, I I certainly uh, I'm embarrassed every time I hear that song. And, Uh, And now my kids have it. They have it. And so they they play it to their friends. And so it's even more embarrassing. So hopefully that would just kind of fade away. Well, that's A
2: couple, qu- couple of questions from the, the, the song. How good of a football player were you and, and was college football a, a thing or did racing have you by the. Uh...
3: If I didn't want to race, I probably would have tried to walk on somewhere. I mean, I could have maybe gotten a scholarship like at a really small college, like, you know, Abilene Christian or Saul Ross or something like that. But I wasn't going to I wasn't going to get a scholarship to any, uh, you know, big 12 school or sec school for sure and i i don't even know if i could have walked on but i mean it's a long time ago so i'm i would have, if i wasn't racing i probably would have put i probably would have put some effort into bulking up and uh, and you know but i didn't want to get too big while i was playing football either i just want to you know football's way of life in texas this is the way we grew up and you know and uh i love it it's 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 my favorite sport you know uh, other than the fact it's gotten political um it's just uh, it's just such a great sport and i love it so you know uh but I, I was never good enough to play college football
2: and then uh what what track did you win a championship at when you were like 15 or 16 odessa,
3: odessa okay. speed bowl yeah
2: is that still around
3: no i don't think it is they actually it was it they changed they moved they moved the track to a different location and a different configuration and it was around for a while but i don't think there's any track around the middle of odessa area anymore I got you gotcha
2: uh, and then you, you talk about sponsor identification. I did a deep dive in the, into some of your sponsors. And I have the answer to this question. There's two acceptable answers. What's the best sponsor you ever had?
3: Well, obviously, Miller Brewing Company did such a great job uh, marketing. And, I, I, and I've developed a lot of really good friendships there. You know, and, um, and I think that the m M&M Mars Company with Snickers they were really a really great sponsor. Um, and, and, you know, what's interesting is that they're still in the sport today. I was the first car they ever sponsored. And, and you know, they, they, they sponsored a couple other teams after myself. And then they ended up going over to Joe Gibbs Racing uh, w- with the M&M's car and Kyle Bush and have been doing that for years. So uh, they, they, were, they were a great sponsor.
2: I had two different ones, though. I had yeah. Helen Drilling. <laughs> and then i had a 1992 daytona 500 um spam burger oh was that, oh did i drive spam car one time i didn't
3: know i drove spam maybe one time
2: <laughs> yeah they, they were promoting the spam burger which was apparently a uh a thing so
3: oh yeah i remember that yeah yeah i don't think i tried it though <laughs>
1: Hey, uh, um, just, uh, just a couple other uh, questions before I let you go. Uh, your dad was big into Indy. Why did you go into NASCAR instead of Indy racing?
3: Because uh, Buddy Baker was visiting the Indy 500. He met my dad and said, you ought to send your son to my dad's driving school, Buck Baker driving school. And I did that. That's where I met Harry Hyde. And Harry Hyde was a legendary crew chief that just didn't happen to have a, a gig at the time. And so Harry agreed to build. He said, oh, I think Bobby Jr. can run NASCAR. And he agreed to build a car for me to race five races. And after I raced those first five races, I came back and said, I like NASCAR and I want to keep racing NASCAR.
2: And, and I never turned back. Now, you, you mentioned Harry Hyde and the days of Thunder crew chief supposed to be fashioned after him. How, much, right. was, how much was he like that? And do, do you have any stories like that from him?
3: Well, they did a pretty good, oh, I could tell you a lot of Harry Hyde stories. <laughs> they did a pretty good job casting and uh, with, with the role of, of uh, Harry Hogue and, and it, you know, very, very similar. I think they did a really good job with that. So it's a very good depiction of, Harry, of the true Harry Hyde.
2: Well, if you'd like to be back in a couple of months, we'd love to have some Harry Hyde stories and maybe some suitcase Jake Elder stories, if you have any. Um,
3: oh, I, I got, I got some, I got a great uh, Jake Elder story, but and I got some great Harry Hyde stories too. But, but before I get off, I'll tell everybody I want, I want everybody to start pulling for Chase Briscoe in the cup series. Uh, my wife and I sponsored him about six years ago to get going at one level, at one point in his career. And uh, he's just done a really, really, really great job. And uh, he struggled a little bit at Stuart Haas this year, but it's more the team I think struggling than he is. And um, I I think he's going to really come out and and end up having a really good year. And he's going to have a great cup career. So uh, really looking forward to seeing
2: how he develops. Perfect. And the last question I have, Evan might have some more. I'm always interested in who is the best racer that we've never seen? Just someone you raced with maybe as a youth or grand national that just never made it to cup. Um, Who would that be?
3: Yeah, there was a man that I raced against when I was first starting out, he's, he's no longer around, but his name was John Foster. John was, uh, he, his real job was he ran, I think it was an ABC affiliate uh, television station in between middle and Odessa. He was the, I think he was the, the head guy there. And he raced um, local stock cars around Texas and Oklahoma and some other regional racing. And everybody said that if he ever went to NASCAR, he'd have been hugely successful. And why he didn't go and try NASCAR earlier on in his career, I'll never know. But he was kind of a mentor to me when I first started racing and a great guy. And, and um, you know, you're probably going to have a hard time finding much out about John Foster on the internet. But if you talk to people around West Texas that have been around for, you know, that have always been around for a long time, they could tell you he was a great one.
1: Awesome. Hey, well, we uh, appreciate the time. That's all we got for you. Really uh, appreciate you coming on and we'll start rooting for Chase Briscoe for you.
3: All right. Keep Luke straight over there too. (laughs) We'll try. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Well, Thomas, I think I speak for you when I say that was a fantastic interview and one that was enlightening and I didn't really have a lot of expectations going into it, but they exceeded all of them.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was, I was glad, uh, I think we, not to pat ourselves on the back, but you know, we did some research just, uh, it was good to hear him answer just what it was like racing back then. And like we said, uh, when we introed it, it was a different time. And, uh, it's just great getting that perspective of, of racing. And the one thing I enjoyed, probably my favorite question I asked was the, who's the best racer he, uh, we never saw. Um, as a race fan, you know it's good to hear those stories because there's just so much different ways you get to uh, to the the Cup Series, and there's so many different routes, and uh, there's so many guys for whatever reason don't get to the Cup Series who are uh, just outstanding
1: racers, and it's good to hear them get their dues from their peers. I think, and one of my favorite things, and you know, we both work in athletics, and one of the things I always like hearing is just old stories, and I think. Bobby did a really good job of doing that and explaining everything. And he gave really in-depth answer, in-depth answers. And I'm like, that was really cool. I mean, in the way that he remembered everything, I mean, the first question was like, what do you remember about that day? And he started listing things. And those were all things that we had questions about. Like it was hotter than hell that day. I uh, mentioned the fan that passed away. And, you know, we had talked about like the cooling suits and he didn't have those And just different ways that, you know, these NASCAR drivers now don't have to deal with, uh back then you had all these different cars and the one thing that you mentioned um was the speed there was no restrictor plates uh at that time and the last lap was 202 and he even talked about it they were going into the corners at about 218 miles an hour so i think he said
2: yeah and uh i look forward to possibly having them back one day i know we uh we had, had glossed over uh some of his crew chiefs harry hyde and uh Uh, suitcase jack elder so if we can get them back on someday to
1: to tell some stories I think that'd be great listening for the fans and just any any of those old-time drivers or even like some of these guys I just love learning about how they got into the sport and again everybody's got different stories Um, you know most of them you know get started with go-karts or going to dirt track racing to get started but I think all of that stuff is really interesting so again thanks to uh, Bobby Hillen for spending some time with us being our first guest uh, I don't I don't know if he knew what he was getting into, but I hope he certainly enjoyed it.
2: It was uh, entertaining, and I was uh, pleased to have him. And hey, if we ever get a merch store up and running, he'll be one of the first people we'll send a shirt to.
1: <laughs> That's right, and then uh, yeah, we'll give him a guest. Hopefully, he becomes a recurring guest. We'll send him a shirt says Loose Lug Notes Podcast with a recurring guest. <laughs> so all right, well we will be back on Friday to preview a Talladega. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening into our special episode with our first guest, Bobby Hillen Jr. Uh, you can give us a follow on Twitter at Loose lug nuts Pod or on Instagram at Loose Lugnuts Podcast. We will see you guys on Friday. I grew up
0: in Texas where football was my game until that racing fever started burning. I started running mini stocks when I was 13 And won a short track championship when I was just 16 I met a man named Harry Hyde and he built a car for me Sponsored by Granddaddy Hillens Drilling Company We ran in five Grand Nationals when I was 17 My Talladega finish was the start of my big dream Bye.